Christ's journey. Happy to see you. Happy to be with you on this day. Happy to welcome you wherever you are making your connection with us today and invite the blessing of God upon you. Some, this is the first time that we have been back in physical space. So I want you to know we welcome you. Kendall Campus, Gables Campus, first time backers, thank you so much. For those of you joining us for the first time online, we invite God's blessing upon you. And for those of us for, for whom right now, this moment, is our first time in worship today. See, we're all first-timers in some way, and God would like for us to know the blessing of his love upon us as if it were our very first time. Um, now, something that seemed very appropriate to me today, I, I was able to participate in the live stream memorial service for Luis Palau yesterday. Tremendous global evangelist who is a friend of our city, a friend of our ministry, uh, Kevin Palau, a good personal friend of ours, and we want the Palau family, all the Palau ministry team, uh, and all of those that have been affected throughout all the world, but especially the countries of Central and South America, our heartfelt gratitude for the ministry of Luis Palau and our love for you. In fact, you know what? He was diagnosed three years ago and given four months to live, turned four months into three years, and as an evangelist would, took advantage of every opportunity to say, you know, I'm on my way to heaven, but I have my ticket, it's paid in full, Jesus has covered all of my expenses, and I would love for you to join me. And this is our prayer today too, that you might know the all expense paid trip that God has waiting for you in heaven because of Jesus Christ. So whatever it is that you're facing and whatever you're going through, may this day be a step in that direction. Now, William James has long been referred to as the father of American psychology, William James. And he said this, we may be in the universe as cats and dogs are in, uh, in our libraries. They see the books, they hear the conversation, but they have no inkling as to the meaning of it all. Can you imagine that? Is that possible? Let's bring it up one time. Look at this one once again. We may be, we may be in the universe as cats and dogs are in our libraries. They're seeing all the books and they're hearing the conversation, but having no inkling as to the meaning of it all. Is it possible to be surrounded by this vast vault of rich reality and yet not have a, be clueless, not have a clue to its meaning. The meaning of it all has been the focus of our two series, these most recent series, for a while. And we've been considering what's called worldview, the view screen of your life through which you see reality, through which you do life, and through which you understand that which is most real. What do you hold most true, most real to you? And we've let the early stories of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, give definition to our worldview. And then what we've done in the two series is then uh, um, evaluate and compare other popular worldviews that have risen over the past three centuries, I suppose, since the 17th century, four centuries, in Western civilization um, that have now populated the view screens of our pluralistic world. In fact, we've seen how many of those new concepts have been around 
since the earliest days of Genesis, including the view that God is, that God exists, that God exists as great, as good, as powerful, as personal, and that God can be known, that God reveals himself in his world, God reveals himself in his word, and then God reveals himself in his son, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh in this world, who introduced himself as the way, the truth, and the life, so that we can know him. You can know him in the forgiveness of sin, in the presence of his spirit, and then when that moment comes, as it did for Luis Palau, he has covered your ticket into eternity through Jesus Christ. You can know him as you seek him and trust him, believe in him. Now the psalmist, the psalmist starting with the world around us, Psalm 24 says the earth is the Lord's. It points us to him. Everything in it belongs to him, will return to him. The heavens declare the glory of God day by day, day after day. They pour forth speech. They use no words, but their voice goes out. Psalm 19. Testifying truth for all who will listen to the nonverbal conversation that's happening in the world. And to those who listen to God's truth in the world around us, then God reveals more of himself through his word to us. Psalm 19, in fact, says that. The first half of the psalm says God reveals himself to his world, and then the second half of the psalm says God reveals himself to his word when we seek him, and, uh, and then leads us to the word made flesh. In fact, the magi of Matthew's gospel from the Christmas story, they show us how that journey works. Remember it with me. The journey began for them when they saw the sign in the heavens that had been placed by the master engineer mathematician who orders the cosmos in all of its precision. And then that star takes them to Jerusalem, which is where they have a Bible open before them from, and read from the prophets, God's revelation over time, and then are told that they will encounter Messiah at Bethlehem. So you see the pattern? The wise men follow, wise men do this, wise men follow what they encounter in nature, and then follow what they encounter in Scripture, and then it leads them to Jesus, the Word made flesh, in our world worthy of worship, as we just sang. That which is most true, most real, revealed in God's love come to save. So, uh, you will call his name Jesus, Matthew says, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, William James says this. Many people live their lives in this world, sharing the same space, same reality, and yet missing the meaning. It's like they're unable to comprehend Going through the motions, you ever feel like you're doing this? <laughs> but your heart really isn't connected. It's not fully alive. That's what he's saying. James says that, uh, William James says, like dogs and cats surrounded by life-changing truth, but never able to escape their animal limitations. Never escape functioning at a lower level. Is that possible that people right now Maybe you, maybe somebody you love has their heart pumping and their lungs breathing, but 
they're not rising to the reality that is opportunity before them, missing out on the spiritual meaning of life because they are trapped in a lower perspective. Does this ever happen to you? I'm standing in front of the refrigerator, the refrigerator's open door, can't see the very thing that I'm looking for. So I say, Lisa, where's the moho? She says, well, it's right there in the fridge, right there in front of you. Well, I don't say, well, I don't see it. You know, I don't want to say I don't see it. So I keep looking until she comes over, gets it, and then says, here it is, right? And it doesn't just happen to me. I mean, it happens to her too, whether it's jewelry in a box or medicine on a shelf or a spatula in a drawer. You know, I mean, it's the human capacity that we have to not see what is right in front of us or perhaps even surrounding us is very real. Jacob, who would become Israel in the Genesis story, says this, Genesis 28, 16, surely the Lord was in this place. <laughs> the Lord was in this place, but I was clueless. I was not aware of it. Sometimes that happens at church. In the presence of God, but not connecting we're talking about worldview. When it comes to your view on this world, how you see things in life, Genesis says, oh yeah, it's possible. It is possible to be even in the presence of God and be clueless to not get it. In fact, Jesus would tell people, he said, you know, you have eyes, but you don't see. You have ears, but you don't hear. You have hearts, but they're hardened. That's why you're not feeling. I don't feel God. Why not? Well, your heart has hardened against him. And so you, you're blind, deaf, hardened of heart. In fact, Matthew 13, he says this, this people will look, but they won't see. They've stopped up their own ears. They have closed their eyes. Is it possible? For a person to have their mind so dulled that they can't experience God any more than an animal can understand and carry on intelligent conversation. And if so, okay, now we're going to say, yeah, okay, if so, then why? Why is that? How could that happen? Why does that happen? That's the worldview question. Why is that? And there's an answer that is beyond merely physical limitations. It's a spiritual reason that the early chapters of Genesis want to open our eyes to of a very deceptive kind. Why don't we function? If we are image bearers of God, if we've been made to experience God and know God, why doesn't it happen? If we've been made with a spiritual capacity to pull us above animal limitations, then why doesn't it happen? Why don't we function at full capacity to know what is most true, the most real reality of them all? God, why doesn't that happen to people? Genesis chapter 3 says there is another force at work in this world, a deceptive force, a deceiver, um, that is set to distract to divert, and then literally to destroy the opportunity. And not just the opportunity, but to destroy you. Jesus said the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Same thief that we're introduced to in Genesis chapter 3. But the devil is a sly one, you know. He doesn't just take you out in one bite and then you're gone. He prefers slow erosion over time. And we can see it in the story. By the way, I saw an article in Popular Science. The headline was this, Four Parasites That Want to Invade Your Brain. Subtitle, 
They just want a nice home and to destroy you. First parasite, the first parasite mentioned was the horrifying infection of a brain-eating amoeba. Happened here in Florida. Maybe you remember when the Florida Department of Health issued a warning against people swimming in warm, shallow water. It was because a seventh grader had contracted the parasite. First parasite mentioned, brain-eating amoeba right here in our state. I'll spare you the details on the others except to say that there, the last one mentioned was a parasitic worm, the loa loa, and when in your body does damage to your nervous system and the retina, it causes cognitive loss, it causes memory problems, it causes personality changes, much more. The retina, of course, is the part of your eye that has those millions of uh, light-sensitive cells that receive and then organize information and send it on to the brain through your optic nerve. That's what enables you to see physically. But this parasite invades the brain to destroy your ability to see. Now, why am I telling you that? Because Genesis 3 shows us how the deceiver functions like a spiritual parasite through words. And the deceiver's intention is to affect the way you see. Words that shape your perceptions. Words that... Uh, affect how you see and what you see because of the filters that you are being fed, your view of the world. That's what this series is about, worldview. And what we saw last time is that the serpent misrepresents God's word. Uh, and I want to take an even closer look today to expose one of the most diabolical of all worldviews. It's when the deceiver starts quoting God. It's the worldview of religious legalism. And we saw last time how he twists God's truth and how the evil one seems to know that with human beings, if you want to get us to do the wrong, if you want to get us to do wrong, then frame it. Show us how doing wrong is going to set something right. You know, make us believe that we are defending what is right, that we're sacrificing for something that's even more Right. Well, today we're taking a closer look at how that temptation was framed. To portray God as the big, bad, oppressive rule enforcer. Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Genesis 3.1, the words of the deceiver. It's like saying, hey, you know, word on the street is that God is really strict. <laughs> Did God say you must not eat any? God is the don't do that God. God is framed as the stop that God. The don't do that the ogre in the sky, the moral policeman who's going to come in and say, now stop that. Now, what actually happens? What Genesis, it, you must not. I Hey, I hear he's not letting you eat from any of those trees. All those trees in the garden, and he's not letting you eat any? How's that work? You must not. 
Now, what Genesis 2 actually says is that the Lord made this beautiful garden called Eden, full of delights, with all kinds of trees. They were pleasing to the eyes, beautiful. They were good for food, delicious, nutritious. And there was a river that was watering that garden that flowed from Eden into four separate headwaters into different lands. One land was filled with gold, another with aromatic resin that's used in medicine and perfume. So we're talking about blessings of wealth and health that God has created for his image bearers in creation. And then onyx, jewel, and then right in the middle of the garden, it says, the tree of life. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the first thing God said to the man about the garden, what was it? Chapter 2, verse 16. You are free. You, this is what God said. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. All those delicious, gorgeous, nutritious trees in the garden, how many unnumbered, we're not told. All we're told is only one rule in all of the garden. There's only one rule. God's first words were what? You are free. Would you say those with me? You are free. And yet, what does the deceiver pull out and what, what did he say God's first words are? You must not huh, eat any. So the de deceiver uses, abuses God's word. He makes, why? To make God appear more strict than he is, more demanding than he is, more judgmental than he is, more condemning than he is. The deceiver portrays God as more rules-oriented and restrictive than he is. You must not eat any. And in that twisted exaggeration, a parasite is implanted in the human brain that we have never recovered from, that God is all about you keeping the rules. God is all about restricting your potential and denying your fulfillment. That God is going to tell you, you must not. That God is all about requiring you to toe the line. You see that? God's the great killjoy of life. You must not. This is the language of religious legalism, of pharisaical judgmentalism. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't smoke. Don't cuss. Don't wear that. Don't drink that. Don't, 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 don't. It's creating the sense that God is all about the don'ts. That's the teeing up that the evil one is using here. God is all about the don'ts. In John's Revelation, final book in the Bible, he says that the evil one is exposed as the accuser, the one who accuses the brothers and sisters day and night, day and night, day and night, finding us out, judging us, putting us down, slandering us. This is the language of the accuser not the language of the creator. Let me ask it this way. In your worldview, in the way that you view the world, when you think about God, what are the first words that come to mind? You are free. Or you must not. 
Too many times for me, I got to tell you, it's the you must nots. I'm a recovering legalist. I'm a recovering religious Pharisee. And I, you know, I've, for how long did I think God is just going to put the brakes on my life? You feel like that? When you think about God, do you think God's going to try to hold you back or keep you in line unless you keep the rules? The deceiver is an expert at taking God's words out of context. God was an accelerator. I'm here for your fulfillment. I've given you the world. I want you to be free and to eat from any, except there's just that one. Do you see God putting the brakes on you and holding you back, or do you see God as being the accelerator that can move you into fulfillment in your life? I'm telling you the deceiver is the one who whispers into our ears and say, he's out to get you, he's going to stop you, <laughs> he doesn't like you, you'll never measure up. You're just not good enough. After the man and woman disobey God's one rule, they, he deceives them into disobeying that God's one rule. But after they disobey, they do experience the consequence. So here's the truth. You know this is true. Choices have consequences. They always do. They always have. They always will. Your freedom means that your choice will have a consequence. It will have weight that will affect your life and others. And we see this echoed throughout Scripture as well. Moses in Numbers 32, be sure your sin will find you out. That's not a threat. That's a fact. Our choices have consequences. In the New Testament, Paul says something very similar. He says, God isn't mocked. Whatever a person sows, that's what they reap. This is the way it works. You plant a seed, you harvest a crop. Your choices have consequences. And we see that in Genesis chapter 3, because as soon as the choice is made to violate the one rule, spiritual death starts setting in, and the parasite starts eating away at the way they see the way they see themselves, the way they see each other, the way they see God. Shame enters the experience. It says they suddenly feel the need to hide. They're not looking at themselves the same way. They're not looking at each other the same way. They're not looking at God the same way. Genesis 3, 7, they realize they were naked and, and they make coverings for themselves. So when they hear God coming to take a walk with them in the cool of the day, they hide. They hide in the trees, the trees that God said, oh, enjoy them. They're beautiful, they're nutritious, they're delicious, and now they're just camouflage. They're being used as hide. When God calls, where are you? The man answers, I heard you, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Fear, shame, guilt, all now at work inside him, in his psyche. And God asked, verse 11, who told you you were naked? Who have you been listening to? What voice have you been listening to? Have you eaten from the tree, that one tree that I commanded you not to eat? What did the man say? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And God says to the woman, well, what is this you've done? And she says, the snake deceived me, and I ate it. So now the blame game is in full swing. You know, self-defense is shifting blame, blame shifting and self-defending. And, uh, and yet, if we listen closely, we will, we will see that the man didn't first blame the woman. Pay careful attention to what he says. The woman you put here with me. Is that passive aggression I'm hearing? 
It's like he's saying, hey, you know, who, who do you think you are taking me to task on this? You're the one who put her here. You're the one who put me here. This is all your fault. Blame shifting, self-defending. Why are you getting, taking this up with me? It's like, you know, his spiritual sight, has, his retina is not working. Something is already being twisted and shaded. The parasite is causing cognitive loss, memory failure, and a personality change. Now God seems so demanding and so egregious and so... And of course, what happens next, the curses are pronounced. The consequences of the choices are now going to be felt In the worldview of religious legalism, the view is built on rules, rules, and more rules, and you being demanded to keep the rules. And that fuels fear and shame and guilt and blame. Why? Because we're not so good at keeping rules. And the defense mechanisms kick in, and we start blaming other people. No, they really did it. They did it. Not me. I'm... You know, it's hard to face the truth because something is affecting my sight about me on this. The worldview of religious legalism, self-righteousness that judges others, and it makes God appear to be the master enforcer. Don't mistake what I'm saying. God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. Sin will be judged. But our holy judge is never simply holier than thou. Do you know that? In the, gen in the story of Genesis and in the story of Jesus, our holy God is always holier for thou. <laughs> he's, he's wanting to be on your side even as your choices are empowered and you experience the consequences. What is it that God does? Yes, the curses come in that mean pain is going to accompany your life now, but what does he do? He clothes and covers the nakedness. God does that. God, in severe mercy, posts an angel so that they won't foolishly take from the tree of life and then be bound in their eternal separation from God. God makes a promise to the woman that her seed will crush the serpent's head. And then in Christ, what we know is that God's holy love takes all the judgment of all of our sin upon himself. That's how God would crush the serpent's head. He would do it himself by taking all of the sin for all of the world, all of our mistakes, all of our failures, all of our consequences into himself on the tree and do something that the power of legalism through self-righteousness could never do in himself. The deceiver is very skilled in misquoting and twisting God's truth, taking just enough of it to distract us and mess with our heads, mind games, so that it sounds right. It seems so right. And, and he loves to disguise his actions in rule-keeping religion, masquerading as an angel of light from the high moral ground from which he always accuses the brothers and the sisters. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, 
the religious rule keepers were Jesus' greatest antagonists. As you read through the gospel stories, tell me I'm wrong. The scribes, the Pharisees, the, the gatekeepers of the law, the way they were using it. In fact, they used it to ultimately get him killed. In Paul's ministry, where he's taking the gospel of God's unconditional love and grace across the Roman Empire, it's the religious legalists, the circumcisers, the religious traditionalists, the self-righteous rule keepers that were his greatest opponents. Why is that? Because this is a false worldview. When religion is hijacked and the traditions and rules of men are then dogmatized and absolutized, beware. Just like Jesus said, beware the yeast of the Pharisees, Matthew 16, 6, legalistic self-righteousness that postures itself as holier than thou and wants to catch you doing something wrong, thrives on blaming, shaming, and condemning other people, and then nail you for it. This is not Jesus. This is not Genesis, the early chapters here. Jesus takes the nails for people. Did you know Jesus never preached hell hotter than for the self-righteous Pharisees? In Matthew chapter 23, he said, you're making them twice the sons of hell that you are. You won't let them in and you're, you're going yourself and you won't let other people in because of all of your legalism. These were the guys who were treating the Bible like a rule book for self-righteousness and then judging those who weren't like them. Let's just remember together again, God in Christ is never simply holier than thou. He is always holier for thou. God on our side. And this is what Paul the former Pharisee, he was a legalist. He knew how deceptive this could be. This is what he writes in the book of Colossians. God made us alive with Christ. God doesn't want to take you out. God wants to lift you up. He wants to make you alive. He forgave all of our sins. He doesn't nail you for them, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness. That's legalistic righteousness, which stood against us and condemned us, according to the accuser. He's taken it away. What did Jesus do with it? Nailed it. On the cross. And then having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The parasite that I mentioned earlier that eats the bread and destroys the retina and the eyes is the loa loa worm. It's been known to migrate in the human body for 10 to 15 years. Did you know that? Once it's in, it doesn't tend to get out. And if it is left untreated, it will continue to do damage. That's what it does. But the article said there are two medications that have been discovered to deal with it. In a similar way, this scripture I just read from a former legalistic self-righteous Pharisee says there are two divine medications that our great physician uses to cure people like me and like you, perhaps, from religious legalism and Pharisee judgmentalism, the death and risen life of Jesus Christ, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In his death, Jesus disarms human pride because that's the heart that is beating behind self-righteousness is look at me. I have something to boast in myself. And what Jesus does on the cross is put pride in its place and nails our sin debt 
to his body on the tree. So you receive it as a free gift of grace by faith. And then the second remedy is welcome his risen spirit to make you alive. God has made us alive in Christ. Welcome the spirit of God's Christ into your life, into your mind, into your psyche, so that he can transform the way you think, so that he can cleanse the filter through which you view life, and so that he can start restoring your freedom. So where judgmental religion, how can you know you've got it? It says this, blame, shame, and defame. And what Jesus does in the midst of that is come in and say, nope, reclaim. I'm going to redeem that which we thought was lost. And I have made a way on the cross and the resurrection for the ones I love to find me in full freedom. God's redeeming grace in Christ means that he can reclaim us and remake us in his image no matter how far we've fallen, no matter how much we've been deceived, no matter how painful the consequences of our choices have been, that God in Christ comes to our rescue And those scars have your name on them because he nailed it. (laughs) And he nailed it to the tree when he did. Now, you know what? You you don't, um, I don't know how to, I don't know how that all works. But I know that it does. It's working for me. It's working in me right now. It will work for you if you let it. You don't have to explain it in order to experience it. I can't explain how a brown cow eats green grass, produces white milk, yellow butter, and orange cheese, but I still enjoy dairy products. Know what I'm saying? I read an article where Mrs. about an interview where Mrs. Albert Einstein was being interviewed, and the interviewer said, Mrs. Einstein, can you explain the theory of relativity? And she said, no. But Albert can, and he can be trusted. What Jesus Christ has done for us defies explanation. But it invites trust. You don't have to explain it to experience it. But you got to know the one who's trustworthy. The one who went to the cross to say, I love you this much. And the great physician who can now bring the medicine to your heart and remind you that God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. The devil doesn't want you to get that. He's probably whispered to somebody already this morning. You may have even had to fight this. You know, why should you go to church? Why should you talk to God? I mean, after what you've done. And how many times did you promise you weren't ever going to do it and then you did it again? And then you said you'd never do it. And then you did it again. And then you did it again. And then you did it. Who do you think you are? Why should God pay attention to your prayers? Why do you even go down to that church? All these reasons to stay away from God. You know whose voice that is? <laughs> it's the same voice from Genesis chapter 3. But God is saying, oh no. I love you so much. You choose me because I've already chosen you. And we can together triumph over the lies that want to keep us trapped. Imagine with me a place where you could be part of a community where grace and truth are spoken. Imagine a place where where law yields to love. The unconditional love of God. A place where Shame 
meets grace and where the kingdom of heaven is welcomed on earth even when the fellowship is flawed. You know what you're imagining, Christ Journey Church? I'm so thankful for a place like this where people like us can be reminded of how good our God is even when our lives aren't always so good, but our God always is. Would you let him be good to you right now as we pray? Holy Spirit, we need your help with this. It just feels so second nature to me to kick into self-righteous legalism, to rush to judgment about myself and others. Before, it feels sometimes like before I even know what I'm saying, words are out of my mouth. We pray that your Holy Spirit would bring comfort and counsel to us today. That you, as our great physician, would bring the healing balm to our hearts. And where the evil one has tried to deceive us and to destroy relationships and destroy hope and destroy opportunity, that this would be a moment of restoration, of reclaiming, where we allow you to do what you do and love us. We need it, we receive it, we believe it. Thank you, Lord, for loving me. Would you make that your prayer right now? Thank you, Lord, for loving me right where I am, just as I am. I want to know you more. I trust you, Lord. Help me trust you more. And perhaps, friend, you're on the front end of your journey, or maybe this is your very first time to check in with us, but you just know that something needs to change in your life, and Jesus could make that change right now. It just starts with a prayer like this. Lord Jesus, I, I believe you're real. I believe you love me, and I believe you were on the cross for me to nail this issue that I have with me. And I receive your forgiveness of sins, and I welcome your spirit to now live, come alive inside of me as I turn from going my way and learn now to walk with you. Thank you for hearing my prayer and for answering it as I make it in your name. Amen.